at Blue Tent, we've tried to provide small to medium donors with just better information so they can, they can direct their money with greater impact. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is David Callahan, who is founder and editor of Blue Tent, a publication that helps donors find the best progressive causes and candidates. David is also founder and editor of Inside Philanthropy that covers the broader world of nonprofits. David knows a lot about how causes and organizations get funded from a variety of perspectives, having also been co-founder of the progressive think tank Demos. We talked about David's career and what he seeks to provide through Blue Tent in terms of useful information on funding for progressive donors. David and I have a lot of overlap in what we cover, so it was interesting for me to hear about his new enterprise, and it's something you should know about. I'm really curious to see what Blue Tent becomes over time. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with David Callahan at Blue Tent. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, David. Uh huh. Yeah, I've listened to many of your shows. I know how. I know the drill. <laughs> <laughs> Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm David Callahan, and I am the founder and editor of Blue Tent, which is a website that helps Democratic and progressive donors give with maximum impact to win elections and advance change. We do a lot of research and analysis and reporting to try to identify organizations and candidates. Before that, I was and am still the founder and editor of Inside Philanthropy, which is a media site that covers the world of foundations and major donors. And previously, I was a co-founder of Demos, the national public policy think tank based in New York City. So a number of major things to your credit, not to mention a bunch of books and PhD you want to tell me a little bit about your beginnings and how you got on this path? Yeah, I grew up in Hastings-on-Hudson, which is a town outside New York City on, on the river. My father ran a bioethics think tank, which he founded in 1969. And both my parents during the 1960s were big liberal Catholic intellectuals and writers who worked to try to bring liberal reforms to the Catholic Church during a very tumultuous time for American Catholics. And I grew up around a pretty political and, and scholarly household. I went to Hampshire College in the 1980s, very progressive 
alternative college. And there I became very interested in issues of nuclear weapons and national security. This was at the height of the Cold War with Ronald Reagan in power and America waging war on Nicaragua and lots of kind of very scary things going on in the world. And that set me on a path of becoming a kind of progressive foreign policy, national security wonk. I wrote a a couple books in that area. And then in the 1990s, late 1990s, kind of shifted over to the world of think tanks and progressive policy. I've always been curious about Demos. I've been aware of it. I guess I don't think I've had a guest on from there. Tell me about the founding of that. How did you get involved in it? And what was the aim? Yeah, well, during the 1990s, I became very interested in why it was that conservatives were doing so well in this kind of grand battle of ideas. This was after Newt Gingrich and the Republicans seized control of Congress. There was a lot of discussion about the strong think tanks and legal advocacy organizations that the conservative funders had built and the Heritage Foundation, AEI, Cato. I was onto the Koch brothers way back then looking at their whole network of institutions, both national and at the state level that they had built. And I became very interested in helping build up progressive think tank infrastructure. And at that point, I was a fellow at the Century Foundation, which was a small think tank based in New York City. But it was very small. And I thought that there needed to be larger, more powerful uh, progressive think tanks, kind of on par with an AEI or Heritage, which had tens of millions of dollars a year in budget. So... Around that time, I hooked up with Charlie Halperin, who was then the president of the Nathan Cummings Foundation, who was trying to create a new think tank. And I joined his effort, and that evolved into Demos. And Demos was started in 2000 and worked on two main issues, uh, expanding democracy and trying to create more shared prosperity. So a lot of these the voting issues we're hearing about now and issues of electoral integrity and the battle against voter suppression. Demos was very involved in those fights way back in the early 2000s and also doing a lot of work on economic inequality. And uh, I stayed with Demos for uh, about 14 years, played a lot of different positions in the organization, developed programs and helped raise money and did all sorts of various things and then uh, finally left in 2014 to start Inside Philanthropy. What did it take to get a think tank going? What was the nitty gritty of that and the, the biggest challenges and so on? You know, it was really hard because this here's the challenge that we struggled with back in, in 1999, 1998, when we were starting Demos, which is conservative funders play the long game and invest in ideas and try to shift paradigms and are very ideologically oriented, right? They, they think in terms of how do you capture the grand narratives that structure American politics and, and culture. And they have invested very religiously over many years in these multi-issue think tanks that have the capacity to tell a grand story about what's wrong with American life and what to do. They've also really strategically invested in trying to seize the high ground of American politics through investing and in work on regulation and the judiciary. I mean, the Federalist Society famously funded for decades to the tune of 
$20 million. And on the liberal side, we found, uh, true then and still unfortunately largely true today, funders think very much in terms of issue by issue, right? So there's just a lot of single issue funding, whether it's for abortion rights or the environment or labor rights or, or whatever it may be, and not a lot of support for multi-issue institutions that kind of try to weave together a larger narrative. And so we struggled to raise money for Demos. The Ford Foundation finally gave us a grant. The Nathan Cummings Foundation put up some seed money, but it was a really long, hard, tough haul for many years. Why do you think there is that difference between funding on the right and funding on the left? It doesn't really make sense to me without observing it that that would be inherent. I mean, there's a strong intellectual tradition on the left. Why do you think it is working out that way? You know, I think it's changed a lot, and that's the good news. I mean, we do now have much more well-funded progressive think tanks, Center for American Progress, of course, being a, a great example of a think tank that's really been brought to scale by pretty ideologically motivated funders. Demos is much larger than it was, the Roosevelt Institute. So it, it has changed. I just want to acknowledge that. But I think it's that a lot of these mainstream liberal foundations like Ford or Robert Wood Johnson or Kellogg or MacArthur they don't see themselves as ideological players. I mean, you, you look at their mission statements and it, it's not ideologically driven kind of language that you'll find. Instead, it's a very pragmatic, we're here to solve problems. We exist above the fray of, of partisan politics. We don't take sides. And this has been mainstream liberal philanthropy's brand for a century. And and it's intended, it's, it's interested in keeping that brand, right? <laughs> and then I just think that there's a lot of short-termism, right? There's a lot of program officers in these foundations that often have a ton of staff who want to show impact. Like I gave X grant and Y happened. And in a lot of the, the kind of battles to shape uh, American politics, you're not going to see impact anytime soon, Right. The conservatives invested for 30 years in trying to shift the judiciary to the right, and they're getting their impact now. But it took a lot of faith for funders to give money to the Federalist Society year after year after year. But they did it. How big did Demos get to be? Its budget now is uh, about 13, 14 million dollars last I checked. What kind of impact has it had? It depends which area you look at. In the area of, of voting rights, Demos has for years worked on the issue of trying to get the motor voter law to work as effectively as it, it meant, to, meant to work and uh, has done lawsuits all over the country to get states to comply and allow registration when people get their driver's license or get public assistance. And so it's had a lot of progress on that issue. It's It's been involved in various litigation over over voting rights in many states for for years. I'd have to sort of go through the, the list of its, its wins. And then over on the economic side, I think that it's had success as well, helping put that inequality issue on the agenda long before a lot of people were paying attention and then making gains on more narrow sets of issues like debt-free college was one of our 
our big causes, trying to better regulate the credit card industry and prevent usurious lending. So it's had impact, but more broadly, I think that it's been part of this kind of progressive infrastructure revival. I I think after Bush won a re-election in 2004 is when you really saw the shift among progressive donors saying, hey, we really have to invest in in this kind of basic infrastructure. That's around the time that the Democracy Alliance came into being. The Center for American Progress has started, Media Matters. There's a whole bunch of infrastructure that happened during that time. And that really changed the funding environment for Demos and, and allowed it to grow more rapidly. But still, $15 million max budget for that organization compared to the Heritage Foundation, which currently has a budget $90 million or even $100 million in some years. So is this the source of your, seems like, long interest in philanthropy was trying to fund Demos and things like that? Yeah, I first wrote about philanthropy in the mid-1990s in an article for The Nation magazine where I talked about the different funding strategies of, of the left and right that we were just discussing and why it is that these big liberal foundations like Ford that have so many more resources. I mean, many of the conservative foundations you have to understand are small. The Bradley Foundation has like a billion dollars in assets compared to the Ford Foundation, which has 12 or $13 billion in assets I haven't checked lately. So I became interested back in the 90s and then became quite interested as somebody trying to raise money in how these institutions operate. And it's a very opaque and confusing world if you're trying to raise money. And it's also a world with tremendous power, power that's pretty much unaccountable to anybody. And so I, I have been interested in philanthropy kind of in two ways. One just better understanding how these places operate to help fundraisers seeking money. And two, trying to wrestle with their immense power and the kind of tensions between the power of that wealth and and unaccountable influence that comes with it and, and democratic values. And how do you square philanthropy, especially the supersized billionaire philanthropy of today? How do you square that with, with the idea of democracy? Why did you start inside philanthropy and make it what it is? Basically, with that motivation, inside philanthropy has two missions. One is to help fundraisers understand the world of philanthropy and get money for their important work. And two is to to kind of critique philanthropy and try to hold it accountable and push arguments about what philanthropy should do or could do better. And so Inside Philanthropy started in 2014 and you know, has been making, I think, a lot of the arguments that we were making very early on about you know, the problems with this new billionaire philanthropy, uh, the need for funders to give more money to community-based or grassroots organizations, that those kinds of critiques have become more widespread and mainstream since we first started the site. Has it been a successful business? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It has been a successful business. It's pretty expensive. Uh, A subscription starts at $400 a year for an individual user and goes up from there for individuals. It's mainly a B2B business that nonprofits are the main subscribers and people renew because they get good information about 
what these funders are doing and how to get to them. How much of your time does it take these days? Not that much because I have a good team that is doing most of the day-to-day work. So you decided to start something in the niche that I also follow, progressive ecosystem. Why? You know, well, after about six or seven years of, of running inside philanthropy, I felt that I had made a lot of the arguments I wanted to make about philanthropy, and we had advanced a critique of this new billionaire philanthropy and its problems and how these big liberal foundations needed to change. And in a way, the, those arguments had become more broadly accepted. The business was doing well. It felt a little like mission accomplished. And I was keen to get back more to directly working on progressive politics and the things that have really excited me in being involved with Demos. So tell me a little bit more about the sort of founding story of Blue Tent. So Blue Tent originally started as a little bit of a kind of ripoff on inside philanthropy. The idea was to cover the world of, of progressive organizations and progressive politics through a kind of an industry lens that just to write about who's doing what, what strategies are working, what leaders are coming up, how people are raising money for progressive organizations. You know, if you think about progressive media, so much of it is is kind of externally focused, making arguments about how the world needs to change or politics needs to change. And a lot of it is really driven right now by intense sort of anger and ideological fervor. And I was interested with Blue Tent in, in sort of turning the lens inward to look at the progressive infrastructure, how it operates, what the internal dynamics of this world were. And so we did that for the first year and it just wasn't getting a lot of traction. I think that maybe post-Trump exhaustion had set in that you know a lot of media sites had seen reduced traffic, but also with Biden in office, the mainstream media for the first time really discovered the progressive world. And suddenly you have much more media coverage than we've ever seen before of progressive movements and organizations and and their attempt to have influence in Washington. So a lot of the gap in reporting on progressive politics, I thought, you know, was suddenly being filled by, by mainstream media. So we shifted over to focus more narrowly on producing research and analysis to help guide what uh, donors are doing and what funders are doing. And so, right, uh, in its current incarnation for the last year, Blue Tent has been focused on identifying the most high-impact progressive organizations and, and the best bang for your buck for political donors. And that mission has really been informed by a sense that a lot of money is not well spent and that particularly small and medium donors on the left who are very mobilized right now. I mean, there's a lot of money coming in for progressive causes and candidates, but the average donor, the average retail donor on the left has very little information, good information to make decisions about where to put their money. So, you know, on the nonprofit side, I think most people know about a handful 
of kind of name brand big liberal organizations, Planned Parenthood, NARAL, uh, the ACLU, the Sierra Club, but they don't know about the New, New Georgia Project or Lucha or Florida Rising or New Virginia Majority. I mean, there's this whole robust progressive infrastructure that sort of exists beneath the surface, right? That they don't show up in the Facebook feed fundraising appeals. They're not sending direct mail. They don't raise a lot of money from individual donors because they don't have a lot of name recognition and capacity. Our effort has been to try to bring attention to um, those important progressive organizations that are so often ignored on the nonprofit side. And then on the political side, a huge amount of money in the 2020 election was just uh, wasted. Amy McGrath raised $88 million and lost by 20 points, right? Senate candidates ended up with more money than they could spend. And today we see some of those same dynamics of Marcus Flowers, who's running against Marjorie Taylor Greene, last I checked, had raised $8 million to com- compete in a Trump plus 35 <laughs> district, right? And so well, at Blue Time, we've tried to provide small to medium donors with just better information so they can, they can direct their money with greater impact. What is the methodology there for figuring out what is a effective organization? It seems exceptionally hard to me to decipher whose work makes a difference. Exactly. It is is not easy. And here's the thing. There is no scientific methodology for evaluating advocacy and policy organizations, right? A lot of them are engaged in long-term work where there's no often clear victories. It's, you know, years and years in the trenches. Sometimes there's big victories, but even when an organization scores some major win, it often does so in conjunction with a lot of other players, right? So how do you isolate the impact of a single organization and assess its effectiveness. So what we've done, and we've evaluated a couple dozen organizations now, starting with big multi-issue progressive nonprofits and electoral groups. What we've done is we've just tried to ask and answer some of the obvious questions that donors tend to have. Trying to do donors' homework for them. So, you know, just take a organization like the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, big policy think tank in in Washington, you know, we asked, does it, you know, what is its theory of change? And does that theory of change make sense? Does it have a realistic plan to kind of carry out its theory of change? Can it show evidence of impact, even anecdotal or like it makes impact claims that in the case of that organization, it can point to a bunch of wins it's had on things like the child tax credit and earned income tax credit. And we kind of evaluate those those claims. Does it have strong leadership and governance? Does it work well with other organizations? When we evaluate organizations, we talk to other organizations in the same space and see whether a group is good at partnerships and, and collaboration. Does it raise money from other funders, you know, major foundations that, that, uh, do have capacity for due diligence is sort of a signal to us that if you're getting money from the Ford Foundation and other big funders, that 
is often a sign that you know you you probably are a pretty good bet for an individual donor. You've worked on several dozen. How many are there that that in your view that meet the criteria for being included in your publication? Like what do you think the the scope is? Well, I, it's not as big as you might think when it comes to multi-issue national organizations. So if you think about the progressive infrastructure and just think about the nonprofit C3 and C4 side of it, there's a handful of of national multi-issue organizations that work across different places and, and different issues. And then below that, there is a ton of organizations that work on specific issues and in specific places, right? So in in a state like Georgia, there's multiple organizations, progressive organizations that just work in Georgia. Or on an issue like abortion rights, there's multiple organizations that work on that issue. But we what we've done is started with the big multi-issue national organizations because our view is that progressives really need to fund these sort of anchor infrastructure institutions, right? Like an organization like Community Change or Center for Popular Democracy. These are core institutions on the left that that need to be scaled. And that's not going to happen without a lot of individual donor support. You think of a place like the, the ACLU, which is one of those name brand organizations, is able to raise $200 million a year. But, you know, an organization like the Center for Popular Democracy, which supports grassroots groups around the country, struggles to raise anything close to that. Its budget is more like 30 or 34, $35 million a year. Our hope is that individual donors can discover these anchor infrastructure institutions on the left and help bring them to scale. I was looking through some of your writings. Indivisible was an example where it's a pretty lukewarm, if review of the national part of that and suggests maybe steering money to the individual groups rather than to the national. And I've heard from others in the sort of donor advisor community, a similar viewpoint about Indivisible. What sits behind that recommendation, for example? So in the case of Indivisible, we uh, had a researcher who spent a lot of time just talking to people about that organization and trying to figure out how you know, its operating model, its theory of change, and how well it it is doing in terms of pushing its agenda and collaborating with other organizations. And she came to the conclusion that there was this big disconnect between national indivisible, which was raising a lot of money and, and doing well, and these local groups, which were not really sewn into a larger network. You know, there's a lot of great work going on in indivisible. I don't want to knock not the organization, but the, her feeling was is it wasn't coming together as a kind of well-oiled kind of change machine where the local efforts and the national efforts were aligned and all sort of pulling in the same direction for maximum impact. 
Tell me about the team that you have. Who have you hired or contracted with to do this kind of analysis and research? You know, it's been journalists and researchers because in order to find out how organizations operate, you have to do reporting. Right? You have to talk to people and try to get access. And that's really a reporter's job. It's not like there is data that one, one can download. It's not like a research, um, you know, a social scientist type of person that you want for this work. It's been hard. It's It's not all organizations are interested in this kind of scrutiny and and wanna and wanna provide uh, access to somebody who wants to come and kick their tires, right? I mean, there are lots of sort of repositories of knowledge about the space that exist. They range from places like Democracy Alliance or whatever that have spent time trying to analyze where their money should go. Or in the tech side, there's there's some funders like Higher Ground Labs or whatever that look at the at the tech, the progressive tech space. Where else besides reporting directly on organization do you go to, if anywhere, for information about the ecosystem? One of the things that has struck me for a long time is that there is this elite world of funding intermediaries and donor advisory groups that know everything, right? The people in the democracy at the Democracy Alliance or Way to Win or Arabella Advisors, they are very plugged in to who's doing what and what's going on. And they share that knowledge with their wealthy clients or, or donor partners, a place like the Democracy Alliance has, has you know, 100 plus partners and they have briefings and an annual meeting. And you know, if you're a, a, a wealthy donor who's hooked into one of these funding intermediaries, you have a lot of good information on what to do. If you're just an average donor who, I don't know, wants to give a few thousand dollars a year to help advance your progressive values, you have no information. You're basically at the mercy of the internet and whatever shows up in your Facebook feed or your email inbox where you get barraged with fundraising appeals. But there's no kind of rigorous analysis or information you can draw on to figure out where to give your money like wealthy donors have. And so I've seen our mission as kind of how do you take that information that exists in that kind of elite progressive funding network world, and how do you get it to the average donor who needs it? I look closely at what a Way to Win does or Democracy Alliance does. I have a familiarity with places like Neo Philanthropy or the Proteus Fund or Solidaire. These different funding intermediaries pay a lot of attention to where they're putting their money, and try to bring that kind of information to the readers of Blue Tent. I quite recently interviewed Dimitri Melhorn. You may be aware of his work. He represents Reed Hoffman in his, and maybe others in his political giving. And he had written an email to, I guess, people who he'd funded or people wanting to get funding from him indicating a big change 
in what he thought was efficacious. He was talking about what they had learned was funding the left was backfiring and that they wanted to be much more targeted. Dimitri is very forceful in advocating his viewpoint and his viewpoint was basically we are in a fight against fascism. We have to do what it takes to win, be less ideological. Where do you locate yourself? The progressive community is split by many different theories of what works and what doesn't, who should get funding and who shouldn't, whose work has impact. And it's not entirely sorted out. Where do you think as an organization you try to be? My view is that we need both mobilization and persuasion. And this is not an either or choice. There, there tends to be this kind of polarized debate between do we try to mobilize the base or do we try to reach out to moderate suburban, you know, college educated moms? I think both are important and there's infrastructure that's doing both. And I, I do think that many funders in recent years have heavily doubled down on mobilization infrastructure animated by this kind of new American majority hypothesis that if we can expand the electorate, bring in lots of voters of color and kind of knit that together with white progressives, that that's the winning coalition. And so you, you've just seen a tremendous amount of money go into this kind of mobilization work. And I think that that has been money very well spent. I mean, one of the groups that we highly recommend on Blue Tent is the Movement Voter Project, which has moved a tremendous amount of money in the last few years to those kinds of grassroots mobilization organizations, many focused on registering and mobilizing voters of color. Other, a number of other organizations that play in that space, Way to Win, Community Change, Center for Popular Democracy. These are all organizations that, that I think are are doing great work. At the same time, it's important to invest in persuasion. And we just wrote about this recently of looking at organizations that are trying to go where Democrats normally have big problems, rural voters being a great example. So right now we are evaluating the Rural Democracy Initiative, which is, I think, one of the most exciting initiatives to come along to try to connect with rural voters that we have seen in a long time or maybe ever. We wrote a brief, a strategy brief, which is another kind of research we do, looking at how donors can give to help build power and win elections in rural America and how actually Democrats have a, a lot of opportunities there because there's a lot of voters in those places who are progressive but feel like the Democratic Party doesn't talk to them and has, has left them behind. There's organizations that are focused on the moderate, you know, white voters in suburbia that I think need to be funded. So Galvanize Action is a, is a good example of, of one of these groups. I know you had um, the founder of that group on your... And Sarah Jane's from Rural Democracy also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've, you know, you've, you've yeah. covered a lot of this. You've covered a lot of this, this ground and, you know, that there is a... But it a is new... still very difficult, I think. I like Sarah a lot and Galvanize is interesting. I mean, but it's very hard to know. Like those strike me as probably long-term plays to some extent. 
I think we should be working on the rural voters, but but how to know, like if you're trying to say, where can you get to a small or medium-sized donor? Where can you get the most bang for your buck? I think that's an incredibly difficult calculus to say, uh, you're going to move more people with a dollar here than a dollar somewhere else. I know the Analyst Institute works on things like that with math, right? But some of it is just intuition about politics and where where you think change may come down the road. Right. And, and I think, yeah. And I think it's also your definition of, of impact. So when we talk about high impact giving, it's not necessarily around winning the next election. As an example, the 2022, you know, the midterms <laughs> that we're right in the middle of. For large structural reasons, Democrats may just do very poorly this year. And so we have a 2022 donor guidance brief where we make the argument of, as a donor, you should be giving, yes, to help win the elections this year, but also to build infrastructure that will be relevant in 2024 and beyond. Instead of giving money to Mark Kelly in Arizona, who's going to raise $100 million, give your money to Lucha or some other grassroots group in that state that is building infrastructure that will help Democrats up and down the ballot, and that will also be around in 2024, 2026, and beyond. This kind of long-term mindset, I think, is is something that's really critical for, for donors at all levels to embrace, because you never know what's going to happen in the next election and what sort of structural kind of larger forces or headwinds we may be facing. But we do know that steadily building infrastructure and engaging more voters and expanding our electorate is is stuff that will pay off over the long term. One idea that's been around for a while and is out there currently in groups like Give Blue, I don't know if you've run into, which is like a donor website that helps push people to send their money to the most impactful campaigns or organizations. That's been, it's not as much a research play as it is sort of a contribution processing play. If you're talking about smaller donors on your site, have you thought about adding that capability or partnering so that people could connect quickly from the research to the donation? Yeah, we're, we're looking at building that, that capability and it's technical. I mean, Give Blue, I think, is a cool outfit and that it's really doing great work on the technology side of trying to f- figure out how to allow donors to give with minimum friction and maximum impact. I guess I see that the challenge is much larger, though. I mean, the, to educate these sort of smaller donors in, in a whole infrastructure and set of strategies that they don't know about, how one approaches elections that the average individual small donor thinks about candidates and pretty much candidates only, right? And in general, we recommend not giving to candidates, especially federal candidates, because they are raising a ton of money. Stacey Abrams is going to raise a ton of money. Warnock has raised a ton of money. And also the problem with giving to candidates is once the election is over, they don't really leave anything behind, right? Their campaign offices close up shop. And uh, all the TV ads have already run, and and 
that's it. Whereas if you give to a New Georgia project or a Lucha or a Texas organizing project, instead of giving to to Beto O'Rourke, give money to the Texas organizing project to try to build infrastructure that will last beyond this midterm. And so that's a big education uh, lift that I think needs to happen for the, the smaller donors on the left who give a ton of money. I mean, we're talking about a couple billion dollars in election cycle coming from these small donors. So how's it going with Blue Tent so far? I mean, you mentioned you spent a year working on the internal dynamics of the, and then kind of pivoted to more of this research. Are you getting read broadly? How does this feel compared to like getting inside philanthropy off the ground as an entity? It's smaller niche. Yeah, it's been challenging. One thing we've learned is that with social media, for example, we, we invest a lot of energy in trying to share our content on social media and boost our content on paid boosting on Facebook, or, you know, any Twitter. Uh, now we're looking at Reddit. And the thing is, is that most of the progressive oriented content that works on social media is driven by rage, really, right? It's ideologically driven. And a kind of more sober analysis of, hey, here are the strategies that work or here are the effective organizations you should be looking at, has a much harder time getting traction. We've had challenges just getting the kinds of eyeballs that we need to the site through social media because of that problem. And the way these businesses work is you you draw traffic to your site, you get people to sign up for your newsletter, then you'd use the newsletter to convert people to subscribers. And we built a base of subscribers. We have revenue, but it's been slow going. How big a base of subscribers? Just a few hundred. Yeah. I mean, after a year. Do you, what's your sense of who those people are? You know, uh, they vary. I think that one thing is that while we're really interested in targeting the small to medium donor who's not connected, a lot of our subscribers are people who are connected, <laughs> right? So we have foundation subscribers, people from the MacArthur Foundation subscribing or other foundations. Those are people who already have all the information they need. But we also have just lots of, of just normal individuals who are looking to make better choices. And, you know, I get emails from, from people who, uh, you know, want help you know, making their donations and are excited. And I hear from people that this has changed how they give out money. They don't want, they're not going to give, send their checks to Planned Parenthood and the ACLU anymore, that they now know about these other options. And, and so that's, that's really gratifying. There's a large base of, of, I mean, Act Blue, for example, released its data from 2021 and said that something like 4 million small donors had given $1.5 billion in 2021, right? That is a, a lot of money for an off year flowing through ActBlue from these small donors. So it is a, in theory, it is a very large market of smaller donors on the left who are out there and need better information, clearly, given, given where some of this money is going. Do you think it's possible you haven't settled on the right business model that like a paid subscription model because of what you're talking about. Like ActBlue's business model 
is partially a piece of the donation, partially tips, right? Give blue probably going down a similar road. Have you thought about other ways to go? Is there a business relationship with the organizations? How do you think about like making this institution now your third or or so, right? Sustainable and and sizable. Well, we've certainly thought about shifting more to a donation only model because you really don't want this information behind a paywall. I mean, right now we have a porous metered paywall. So people who come to Blue Tat will get some free page views and it's eventually the paywall comes up and they can't that's what, read that's it. what happened to me i I, yeah. I read three articles and then it started saying and then subscribe boom, yeah. for a year and i was yeah. like yeah let me talk to them first <laughs> <laughs> exactly right and uh that's not an ideal model what 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 i've learned with inside philanthropy though is that there is just a mathematical kind of connection between the more people who hit a paywall, the more people will give you money, right? It's, yeah. it, it is some no, percentage is no, going to Yeah. Happen. No, nobody likes paywalls, but they actually work to build sustainable media organizations. Obviously the other way one could go, I could go with blue tent would be to raise money for it from, from wealthy donors who believe in the mission. There's a problem with that, that, avenue, though, is that I cover a lot of these people at Inside Philanthropy, right? So I run a philanthropy media site that covers wealthy donors. I can't be then on in my other day job be trying to hit those people up for money because that creates a conflict of interest. And uh, so that's been a, that has been a challenge. Blue Tent might be, would be a lot easier to fund for somebody who didn't run a philanthropy site on, on the side. Do you see any competition for what you're doing out there? What are the other sources that people might go to if not you? You know, it's, I think that there is a, a vast chasm between, if you think about evaluation of nonprofits, on the one side of the spectrum, you have a charity navigator. You know, charity navigator is the top place that kind of rates nonprofits, but it rates all nonprofits, you know, a million plus nonprofits. And it doesn't really tell you anything. It's based upon a financial metrics that don't really get, provide any useful information. On the other side of the spectrum, there's, there's GiveWell, which is a charity evaluator. It sort of helps donors figure out where to give money to, you know, through this effective altruism model. And it does very rigorous research and offers a set of recommendations, mainly focused on global health. In the middle, there's really no place besides Blue Tent, which tries, that I can find, that tries to evaluate nonprofits. We're, we're just focused in the progressive niche. So, I mean, that at least contain, contains this. But, I mean, even, let's take the biggest, one of the biggest progressive organizations around, the ACLU. Let's say you're trying to figure out how effective the ACLU is and you want independent research, right? Because you're somebody who likes to do your due diligence. You want to do your homework before you send checks anywhere. And so you go on the internet and try to figure out who's evaluated the ACLU. Like, where's the. <laughs> you can find more information on any mountain bike than you can find on the ACLU. Consumer websites have a ton of information on. Anything you're thinking of buying or any service you want to use that kind of tries to rate it and review it, 
there's very little information of comparable nature on nonprofits. If you were speaking to a room full of small or medium-sized progressive donors, and you got a question from the audience, which was, where should I send my money? How would you answer that? I would tell them to build a kind of balanced portfolio of giving. On the one hand, you definitely want to be investing year after year in anchor core infrastructure institutions on the left, some of the progressive multi-issue national organizations, a community change, a center for popular democracy, center for budget and policy priorities, a demos. On the other hand, you want to also be putting up money for near-term electoral battles that we need to win. So you want to be thinking, what are the states and, and contests that matter most? But when you look at an Arizona, you want to think, hey, you know, I want to give money to help win this election. I mean, Arizona is a incredibly critical state this year, right? You got a, a Senate seat, you got governor, you got secretary of state, the state legislature. As a donor, you want to look and make sure that you're giving in a way that will have impact across multiple races, which means giving to a, a grassroots organization that is mobilizing voters that can have an impact up and down the ballot. And then the third thing I'd tell the individual donors is, you know, most people are motivated by specific issues. And so your balanced portfolio may also include some issue-based groups, and, and that's okay. Think of it as sort of like a you know, stock investing, right? You want to you want a balanced portfolio. You want to be in in the game for the long term. There's going to be kinds of ups and downs, and the key is to be smart and to be committed and to make the right choices. Are there any of our big donors? I mean, I assume they all have kind of a portfolio uh, similar to what you've just described. Are there any of them that you think is a good model for how to spend money? in this space? You're talking about medium-sized individual donors, but there's people who are putting out millions to hundreds of millions who are doing that due diligence. Have you looked at what they do or talked to them or? Uh, yeah, yeah. We've looked at a lot of what these big major donors are doing. And I guess I'd have to think about it before I sort of singled one of them out for specific praise. I will say generally that there has been a lot of change on the progressive major donor front. I think that there's a lot more movement-based donors out there, right? Like, so Movement Voter Project, for example, and Way to Win. The, both these organizations have some very heavy hitter donors behind them who are wealthy people who understand the importance of funding at the grassroots level to build power, mobilize and engage voters over time. And they're putting a lot of money behind that. You can just look around and see how the progressive infrastructure has scaled to know that a lot of wealthy donors have gotten the message, right? That dumping a bunch of money into the DNC or the DCCC every cycle is not the answer, right? And that we need to play a, a long-term game and we need to go where the grassroots energy is and, and try to support and scale those efforts and to do things differently. I think a lot of wealthy donors have been burned by doing the same old thing. And that that's why a lot of these alternative funding intermediaries that, that, that get money to 
mobilization and persuasion work. That's why they are having success right now. When I asked people about gaps in the progressive ecosystem, one of the things that comes up a lot is media, progressive media. We seem to be overmatched by Fox, et cetera. Do you see that? Do you see anyone doing good work in that area? Is that anything you've reviewed or researched? That's a, a topic that I've followed for the last 20 years, and I'm sure you have too. And it's a very frustrating kind of conversation. We all remember Air America, right? And there's various other ventures, and you've had some of these people on your show, and I've listened to their interviews. And it always comes back to the same problem, which is that the progressive uh, liberal audience doesn't respond as well to this kind of rage-filled media. There's some different brain chemistry uh, among your typical liberal that doesn't make them want to continue to tune in day after day to kind of, you know, ideologically driven media in the same way. And so a lot of these media ventures over the years on the left have, have struggled to have traction. And I don't know how to solve that problem. Is there anything else that you'd like people to know about Blue Tent? Well, people can go and look at the site themselves, uh, bluetent.us. And, uh, you know, we do, we, we offer recommendations of, of nonprofits and recommendations of electoral groups, but we also offer some candidate recommendations. I know other groups play in that space very well, and we're not trying to you know, replace what a sister district project does or a swing left. But, you know, we thought for our audience, it's good to flag some some key candidates. And, you know, we argue if you are going to give to candidates, which, you know, can be part of your giving portfolio, it's not the main thing we would advocate. But if you are going to give to candidates, you really do want to look for your best bang for the buck, right? So most of the candidates we highly recommend are uh, running at the state level, you know, state attorney general, secretaries of state, some state legislators. The few U.S. House races we um, uh, spotlight, candidates uh, there that we spotlight, are people who just have not raised much money yet. There again, you just want to be very careful in how you proceed. Well, it's been great to get to know you a little bit and have a chance to talk. Is there a question I failed to ask that I should have? I think you covered it all. Thanks. Well, Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks much. That was David Callahan. David is at bluetent.us. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.